Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TGC Midweek. We're glad you're joining us. Today, we're going to be launching into the first point of the five points of Calvinism, total depravity. And with me at the table to talk about that and probably depress us all is Michael <laughs> Novak. Michael, what's going on, man? How's your week been since we last graced the airwaves with our voices? I'm feeling very happy and joyful today. <laughs> well, good, because we're going to need that in a little bit. So um, last week, we did a little bit of an introduction to kind of what Reformed theology is uh, very broadly and kind of talked about the historical milieu and into which these thoughts originated. And why don't you just remind folks kind of why we're talking about this and why the five points of Calvinism specifically is an important topic. Sure. I mean, why this matters. Uh, It seems a little bit like we're kicking the hornet's nest Uh, here. uh, There are folks that disagree vehemently uh, on these five points of Calvinism. And like we mentioned last week, it's probably not something that we'd lead with. Uh, but this is the perfect venue to have these types of conversations where folks can tune in um, on their own free time to hear mm-hmm. a conversation about what's happening. Uh, and so why would we discuss the five points of Calvinism? Uh, why would it be interesting to you? I think there's a number of different reasons. We're not doing this to be uh, risque or to um, uh, to be... Um, intentionally controversial. Intentionally controversial. That's what I'm thinking. Controversial. Um, We're doing this because it helps us understand the grace of God Mm -hmm. more beautifully. Uh, If we understand uh, the way that we were saved, uh, it really elevates God and His work in our lives and in our hearts, um, and it promotes worship and love um, and adoration and affection for what He's done Mm -hmm. for us as we understand these five points. And it also hits on some very um, key questions that a lot of folks ask, uh, whether it be um, implicitly or explicitly, they're asking these types of questions, uh, like, why are you a Christian? Mm -hmm. Um, Was it a choice you made? Um, Did you feel compelled to believe? And and why so? Uh, How do you know that you're a Christian? Um, Who or what's the Holy Spirit? And what does He do when it comes Mm -hmm. to salvation? Uh, can you lose your salvation? Uh, a question that lots of people wrestle with internally. Um, if I get into Christianity, can I ever get out? Um, can I have certainty and confidence uh, that when I die, I'll be with God? Uh, these are practical questions that we often have that the five points of Calvinism help us address. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I was just brushing up on a, on a couple of facts to get ready for this podcast. And I have a study guide that I've had for a number of years on the five points of Calvinism. And I was looking at it at my desk at work at lunch and someone walked by and said, first he said, is that Clifford the big red dog? And I said, no, um, it's a guy that thinks he's funny, you know, oh, <laughs> like me. That's right. <laughs> and, and I said, no, it's actually the five points of Calvinism. I'm trying to sound real wonkish. And he goes, what's that? And you said, we don't want to lead with that. And I was like, oh man, this could sound really yeah. negative if I just launch into what like just verbatim what it is. Um, And it's one of those things like we talked about last week, these five points were written after Calvin's death in response to the five points of Arminianism, the remonstrance. So they naturally have kind of a negative feel because they were refuting something. And um, so when we talk about not leading with this, I kind of get that. But on the other hand, once you understand the doctrines of grace more more broadly, Mm -hmm. it really has you standing in awe of God's love for his people um, and the relentlessness with which he pursues us. Mm. Um, and that's a very comforting thing and frankly, something we should lead with. Sure. So, yep. Um, did you pass the 4am test? Do you know what that is? If somebody were to call you at 4am and ask, what is the five points of Calvinism? <laughs> I would say, could you call answer me in, in a sentence call or Call me in four hours. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, that's a tough one. I would probably yeah. just rattle them off what they are and they hang up. But yeah, um, yeah that's a, that's a really, really interesting one. I think if someone did that, they would be looking for an argument and I would probably oblige. Yeah. Um, anyway, okay, so let's dive into this first one, total depravity. So if you were to, let's just lead off with um, the one or two sentence, what is this? And then we'll kind of talk about it a little bit. Yeah, total depravity really means that we are totally corrupt we are totally immoral, totally sinful, totally messed up. Mm-hmm. Uh, every tradition, every um, uh, tradition and denomination has a way where they uh, explain original sin. And Reformed Christians believe that sin has so devastated us uh, that we are completely, totally yeah. at our core sinful uh, and dead. So there's a couple of things I think we need to unpack here. The first one is we need to define uh, who's the we when when we're talking about this, because um, I think just for the audience, it's necessary to remember that we're talking about natural man. This is man in his unregenerate state, man before being a Christian, before, yes. before he's in Christ. This is the natural state mm-hmm. of a human being. Yep. Um, but then there's another point that I we need to understand what this is not, and this is not as wicked as we could be. Sure. It's not utter depravity. Not utter depravity. And it's interesting that you say that, Jacob, because we would say that we don't, we don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We, we sin, sin because, because we're, we're sinners. sinners. Absolutely. And that is every man, woman, child in the world. Uh, we're born into this depravity, into this sinfulness. There's something that happened in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve fell into sin that ripples throughout uh, history, uh, and it touches every man. But it doesn't necessarily mean, like you say, that we're utterly corrupted by sin. There's still some good aspects of who we are. There's still the image of God mm-hmm. that is carried by each man, woman, and child in this world. Yeah. And also that means that our sin has not gone to the depths to which it could go. Um, in my reading on this this topic, some of the examples were given like, Children say mean things to one each one another, but they could throw rocks. I might talk bad. I might say something bad to my coworker, but I could punch him in the face. Mm-hmm. Sure. <laughs> so our our sinfulness has not gone to the depths at which it at, at, at which it could go. Yes, but rather sin has affected every aspect of That's us. Right. So it's it's about the extensiveness of mm-hmm. sin, not the intensity of sin. Yep. And so the total and total depravity, if depravity is immoral, sinful, corrupt, messed up, the scriptures use the word dead a mm-hmm. lot spiritually, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, that's depravity. The word total and total depravity, like you mentioned, is referring to our totality. In other words, every aspect of our being is affected by sin. It permeates our core. There's not an aspect of who you are that isn't affected by sin. It affects your intellect, your behavior, your will, your emotions. And like I said, in other words, we're not sinners because we sin. Mm -hmm. We sin because we were born sinners. So we've talked about how every um, facet of a person's being is flawed from the time they're born. Um, just naturally. So what does the Bible have to say about the state um, of a person mm-hmm. kind of morally and spiritually? Yeah. Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter two, you see in Genesis chapter two, uh, verses 16 and 17, it says, the Lord commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
And so there is um, implications for disobedience laid out here in Genesis chapter 2. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and took the fruit of the tree of which they were commanded not to eat of, they died. Uh, now, they eventually died physically, but we would say that they died that day spiritually. Mm-hmm. Um, their souls, in a sense, perished. Uh, and as you follow the scriptures along, you get hints of this almost in every book of the Bible. Uh, a few chapters later, you see in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it says this, "...the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually." Mm-hmm. Um, you flip to Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 3, and uh, let me read that for you uh, real fast. Uh, it says, "...this is an evil uh, in all that is done under the sun, that the same events happen to all." Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. Um, So the Bible talks about the heart a lot, and this is really the control center of our existence, the core of who we are. And the heart is deceitful above all things, Jeremiah Mm -hmm. 17 Mm -hmm. uh, verse 9 says. Uh, In Matthew chapter 7 verses 21, 22, and 23, Jesus actually says that our problem isn't what comes into us from the outside, Mm -hmm. it's what flows from our hearts. This is where Jesus talks about um, a good tree can only produce good fruit and a bad plant can only produce bad Fruit. That's right, and um, and uh, and so in Mark seven twenty one twenty three. Let me read it full fa- real fast, just so you hear it with your own ears. Jesus says, "For from within, out of the heart of man, out of your core, out of your center, out of who you are." Uh, he didn't say that. I'm inserting that. Uh, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And so it's from within uh, that we are corrupted um, and who we are. And then in Romans uh, 3, um, it says, uh, What then shall we say? Uh, um, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Everyone's under sin, for as it's written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And so the effect of Adam and Eve's fall into sin is, this is really the the question we're asking, what effect has it had? Mm -hmm. And we as Reformed Christians would say it is detrimental we are dead now, and we can do no ultimate good ah, see, because that's, that's an important point. Uh, we have fallen into sin, and uh, we sin because we're sinners. Yeah, so this brings up the point of how does good how do good things happen at all? So, um, you know, Paul's language here in in Romans three is incredibly strong. I mean, it's it's laying out that you know, I mean, he just says it. There's no one righteous, no one who seeks God, no, not one. Um, but how can this be? Because we see people who are unbelievers doing good things all the time, giving to charity, um, generally being good people. So um, how can good works exist in a person who is not a Christian? If what we're saying is true, that we're totally depraved. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's important to understand that when we're talking about uh, choices that we make and good that can be done, especially in terms of uh, us being dead, we're talking in terms of ultimate good. 
when we talk about the five points of Calvinism. And so, for instance, a non-Christian can love his wife better and more faithfully than a Christian, Mm -hmm. and that's good. So he's choosing to do good. You know, uh, somebody in their business place could be a non-believer and have lots more faithfulness and integrity than the Christian sitting in the office next to them. Uh, what we mean when we talk about no one can choose good, our hearts are evil continually, uh, we're talking about ultimate choice in terms of can man choose God. Right. Um, and so there's still the image of God in everyone, mm-hmm. a believer and unbeliever. And so uh, w- because that's uh, the case, um, there's still lots of, I guess, lowercase good that can be done yep. by all humans. We're talking about uppercase good, yep. which is can I choose God? Um, can I choose righteousness that leads to salvation mm-hmm. is kind of the crux of what we're talking about when we talk about total depravity and choice. But even if we look at lowercase good, um, I think we would we would agree that there's di- there, there's there's true good deeds and there are relatively good deeds. Um, R.C. Sproul has a good book called Chosen by God, and he talks about um, how when we're talking about what a good work is. We stumble here because we have a relative, I'm quoting now, we stumble here because we have a relative understanding of what good is. Good is indeed a relative term. Something can only be good according to some sort of standard. And we use the term as a comparison among men. Um, The Heidelberg Catechism in question 91 requires that a good work has three components, true faith, conformity to God's law and proper motive. So I think when we talk about good works it, or just good deeds generally, it's important to draw the distinction between something that is relatively good mm-hmm. and something that might lack one of those three components. Most commonly, I think it's the proper motive. We don't have a motive of doing good deeds to honor God. It's usually some sure. sort of self-gratifying um, kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when we talk about doing good, lowercase g, it's important to kind of draw that distinction. Yeah. I would agree with that. That 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 I appreciate you saying that. And um Man, you're digging deep here. A little R.C. Sproul. I, you know, that book was so influential in my life. I think I bought this. I mean, the price sticker on the back is like worn off. I yeah. think I bought this when I was 16. Um, well, the book you're holding there looks completely different from my book. And I bet there's 17 different covers that oh, have been maybe. on that yeah. book over the years. It's a classic. That one was pretty, was pretty influential. That's actually me. a great book for anybody out there that would like to read a little bit more. Um, R.C. Sproul, Chosen by God. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could buy it on Amazon. Uh, it would be a great resource for everybody to have in their library. Highly recommended. Um, we are not sponsored by R.C. Sproul or Ligonier Ministries in any way. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> um, okay, so influenced any, by them. <laughs> any any other uh, thoughts here around um, kind of good deeds in light of total depravity? Yeah, I think how you view and understand the nature and effects of sin has everything to do with your understanding of salvation. And so that's really what we're going to talk about tonight. And what we're talking about is how has sin affected our natures? And the million dollar question for the Arminian Calvinism debate is how severely does sin affect our will? And more specifically, how severely does sin affect our ability to choose God. The Arminian side would come and say that sin doesn't so completely damage your will that you can't still choose him. Uh, In some ways, they believe that you still have the ability to choose ultimate good. 
um, where the Calvinists would come and say that sin has completely damaged your will. You were dead so that you're unable to choose God unless God first changes the nature of your will. And so we're really talking about how has sin affected um, our natures and our ability to choose ultimate good. Yeah. So the classic analogy here is the drowning man. Um, the Arminian says that the drowning man is is bobbing in the water. He's taking a water. He's he's sucking it in, and he's gasping for breath. Mm-hmm. Um, but he can wave down the lifeguard, and he can he can call for help, and the lifeguard can come and help him. Whereas the Calvinist says that you are at the bottom of the ocean, dead. You've already drowned. There's millions of tons of pressure pressing down on you and God reaches down into the depths of your sin and raises you up. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great analogy. I've heard the sick man on the bed and yeah. the medicines yeah. on the bedside table. And the Arminian would say that you could reach over and take the medicine. You've got just enough strength to do that. And the Calvinist would say, you're dead. You're you dead. can't, you can't reach over and take anything. You need resuscitation or new life. So it sounds like at this point, we're starting to talk about this topic of free will. Yeah, we are. Um, And free will is uh, another important conversation to have when we're dealing with total depravity, um, because uh, do we have a free will? That's kind of the question. Mm -hmm. Um, And the answer is yes and no. Um, yes, if by free will, you mean that you're free to do whatever you want to do. Yep. The problem is all you want to do in your sinful state is to live for yourself. And so outside of God intervening in your life, all you want is sin. All you want is evil. That's why the Bible also talks about us in terms of being slaves to sin. It's so affected our very nature that we can't not choose it. Yeah, the the word nature here is really helpful to me. Um, when I've had discussions about free will with people, they they tend to lean on this definition of free will as you can choose from any number of alternatives, um, which would imply that we could choose God in our sinful state. However, it's important to frame free will under uh, uh, around the definition of you can choose anything you want according to your desires, according to your nature. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that I like to, this is another helpful analogy to me. If you were to put um, a raw steak in front of a lion, but also a head of broccoli in front of that lion, that lion will choose the raw meat every time because it's in its nature to eat meat and not yes. to eat, not to, it's free to choose either one. Um, but it's in its nature, uh, to eat the meat, just like it's in our nature to sin, as we've been talking about this whole sure. time. And the idea of, um, the distinction between may I and can I can also crystallize this, uh, thought, I think, um, we may choose between ultimate good and ultimate evil, but because our nature has so fallen into sin, because we're totally depraved, we've got no ability to choose good. Um, mm-hmm. We only have the ability to choose evil. And so there's a few scripture passages that come to mind that talk a little bit about um, this idea of our uh, nature, um, our will, and whether or not we have the ability uh, to choose ultimate good. Romans 8, 6 to 8 comes to mind. It says this, The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Mm. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. 
And so it's talking about the sinful heart not being able to obey God. Well, why? Well, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, it says, As for you, you are dead, not sick, not almost drowning. You are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Um, and then just a few more, because um, we could go on, I think, tonight. But 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they're spiritually discerned. So Paul's saying that the natural sinful heart is not able to accept or understand spiritual reality on its own. It's dependent completely on the gift of God. Uh, resuscitating our hearts so that we might understand. And then just two more, really quick. 1 Corinthians 12, 3 says, Therefore I tell you, no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Again, talking about ability. You can't confess Jesus is Lord without the work of God mm -hmm. the Spirit in your life. And then last... Lastly, uh, John 16, verses 44 and 45, it says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. And then in verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. So you have three times here in the matter of 20 verses, Jesus saying, You're unable to come to me. Unable. Yep unless the Father draws you to me. Absolutely. Again, important to remember here, we're talking about man in his natural state, unrege the unregenerate person before being in Christ. It, if you're looking for kind of some categories to put around this free will topic, um, Augustine talked about the difference between free will and liberty. Our corrupt nature means that our liberty is fundamentally broken. We're free to choose whatever we desire. The problem is we're always going to desire sin. Um, because we're in such a state of moral bondage. And because of that, we can't choose God, because to do that would be fundamentally against our nature. It would be a lion eating broccoli. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, and I think kind of to close tonight, maybe it, it's helpful for me, you know, Thomas Boston, I think, is a Puritan uh, that came up with what has become known in theological circles as uh, the fourfold state of man. Okay. And it basically deals with uh, our wills and um, and how we're able to choose. And he says that before the fall, Adam and Eve, as they were living in the garden with God, um, they had the option to choose ultimate good and evil, and they had the ability uh, to choose good and evil. Um, and you see them ultimately choosing evil and falling into sin. Um, after the fall, you've got the option to choose ultimate good and evil, but you only have the ability in your fallen nature to choose evil. And so it's your lion and broccoli mm -hmm. analogy. Every time we're going to choose the meat because that's our nature. Yep. Uh, after we're regenerated, which we'll talk in weeks to come, when God gives us a new heart, a new life, breathes life into us spiritually, we have the option of good and evil and the ability, once again, to choose good and evil. And it's a war between choosing good and evil in our hearts where sin still reigns in some degree. And then in glory, um, we will only have the option and the desire for good. Yep. Um, and so... 
it's really a helpful way uh, to frame maybe some of our conversations that will happen in the coming weeks. And also it can help uh, a more analytical mind understand <laughs> where you are in that process um, uh, in terms of your own um, uh, redemptive historical story yep. uh, personally. I, I'm certainly one that appreciates uh, frameworks and in, in, uh, categories in which to think. So um, I think that's probably a good place to leave it today. Um, I don't want anyone to feel like we're leaving you on a downer here yep. because when we're talking about total depravity and how wicked you all are, um, it can be really easy to get <laughs> a little bit depressed. Um, it's easy for, as we're, as we were preparing for this podcast, at least, at least I was, I don't know about you, Michael, but um, it's really easy to go straight from here to to the U in TULIP, which is unconditional election, um, which will really put the total depravity a little bit more in context. Um, so we hope you tune in in the coming weeks um, for that message. Next week, um, we're going to look at some of the objections to total depravity that the church has had uh, over the years. Talk a little bit about those. Um, spoiler, refute them. And um, we want to take your questions too. And my goal is to get two questions to chew on from the audience and I'm an avid podcast listener and they always ask folks to send in questions and comments. And I never do because <laughs> there's like 2 million people listening to that podcast. So the chances of my question getting addressed is slim to none. Yes. Um, we've got, there's like 20. Yeah. Listening to our hey man, podcast. I was going to say dozens and dozens. So let's <laughs> say 24. Yes. There is a strong handful <laughs> of folks listening to this podcast. So if you want to send in a question, um, I can promise uh, I can promise very few things in this world, but I can promise your question will get addressed. <laughs> Send in your questions about total depravity. You can email them to michael at trinitygracesa.org, or you can text those questions to 210-920-0783. We want to chew on those questions and address them um, to help you out as you're thinking through the five points of Calvinism along with us. Um, and then after next week, we'll dive into the you in TULIP, unconditional election. Michael, do you have any final thoughts to close out the evening? Uh, I would just hit on what you ended on. Uh, you've got to understand this. Uh, and so we spent time and it's depressing. Uh, but if you can understand this and come to an agreement on where we are in our natures and what the effect of sin has done to us, uh, then it'll make uh, the unconditional yeah. election that we talk about in a few weeks that much easier. And the doctrine of total depravity should not leave us insulted or offended, uh, but should open up new doors of gratitude and joy. We just didn't get there yet yep, tonight. That's and right. So we're going to get there, uh, but we've got to stop somewhere. Yeah. So that's right. Once you get to the end, this whole conversation that'll take eight or so weeks um, is going to make the gospel look all the more beautiful. At least that's our hope. Yes. Um, so until next week, I'm Jacob, he's Michael, this has been TGC Midweek, and we'll see you later.